Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers 4DC. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. We're back in the studio here in London, where it's quite sunny. And we've been away for a while, the whole month of May. I'm joined by Paul Holmes, Homes Report Supremo. Paul, welcome. Thank you. It's been a while since our last podcast. We were a little busy in May. Yes. A couple of events. And we are back now with the dramatic news about FIFA, an organization that we have looked at in detail recently and, and over the, the past couple of years, particularly via the crisis review uh, in which FIFA has tended to feature with some frequency. Big news yesterday with, with several arrests being made um, after an investigation by U.S. authorities. Paul, where do you see this leaving FIFA from a kind of reputational standpoint? Well, one would hope um, as both a football fan and a PR expert, that this kind of crisis uh, demonstrates that the current regime at FIFA is uh, unsustainable. Um, you know, I think the, the everybody. It, it, this is one of those things that everybody has known for a long time to be true. I mean, I don't think anybody is uh, shocked to find that uh, corruption ran, runs rampant at FIFA, um, but it was something that um, that seemed to need a catalyst, that seemed to need some sort of outside pressure uh, to get people who, frankly, should have known better and should have behaved better to finally take some action. And I include not only the sports governing bodies around the world in that, but also the sponsors who have been happy to profit from their association with FIFA. Um, without apparently uh, caring very much about how it conducted its business. It's interesting you mentioned the sponsors because the view when we've discussed this before, I think, is that real change would only come to FIFA when the sponsors demanded it. But business has been very slow to lead on some of these things, particularly when you consider the number of worker deaths that have taken place uh, constructing Qatar's World Cup stadiums. That doesn't seem to have caused sponsors too much grief? No, I think in general, um, the relationship between sponsoring companies and the giant uh, global events like the World Cup and indeed the Olympics um, is, is, is often um, under-examined on the, the client side of things. I, I think, um, mm. you know, I, I think the time has come when companies have to start to take responsibility uh, for what is being done to a large extent in their names. Um, mm. And and obviously, you know, if if you're a sponsor, it's very easy to take the position, well, you know, the fan, if the fans cared that, you know, corruption was rampant, or indeed, if the fans cared that um, laborers are being killed all over uh, Qatar, um, then um, then they wouldn't go to the event and our sponsorship would become null and void. But mm. so we're just following the fans. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't think that that's a, um, I just don't think that's a tenable position anymore. I think sponsors, the expectations of sponsors are going to be much higher going mm. forward. That's that's like the Newcastle United 
school of thinking. If the fans still come, we can do whatever we want to the club. Yes, exactly. I think, um, you know, but but I think that if you're talking about a relationship and if you're talking about getting real tangible benefits out of mm. your engagement um, with, a, with a club, with an event, with a league, with an association, mm-hmm. then at some point you have to start thinking not only about sort of what the audience size is, but also about what the perceptions of the event are. Mm. Um, you know, you're not just now associating yourself with a giant sporting spectacle, you're associating yourself with slave labor. Mm. Um, and I just don't think that's a, a very healthy thing. Uh, for any organization to do. Mm-hmm. And in the case of in the case of FIFA, I mean, I think that the time has come for people to say, unless there is regime change, um, this is not an organization that we want to be associated with any longer. Mm. So we will wait and see what happens with FIFA and how this plays out. Um, By the way, I, I think... <laughs> I think it would be remiss to to have a conversation about this without um, maybe uh, commenting on what was really an epic public relations mm. performance yesterday. Yeah, I, I was actually uh, going to ask you about 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 that. The uh, FIFA's comms director, Walter Di Gregorio, um, take us through his press conference. Your your highlights. Well, I I I thought I thought to a certain extent it was possibly the only thing that he could have done mm-hmm. was to stand up there and latch on to that the, the one comment by the U.S. authorities that that sort of held out a sliver of of hope for the the FIFA leadership, which was this idea that FIFA itself was the victim mm. of uh, of this corruption, and certainly, you know, certainly when when individuals within a leadership group. Um, are are acting in this way. Um, You can make the case that the institution has somehow been harmed. But to (laughs) leap from there to the idea that, you know, the the rest of the leadership, which either participated or or condoned this Mm -hmm. kind of behavior um, and certainly benefited from it is somehow you know, part of the mm. victim pool is frankly absurd. And the issue that it raises for me, which is always an interesting one, is when you're employed by FIFA, um, is your loyalty to the organization or to the chief executive? Mm-hmm. And there comes a point where the interests of the organization and the interests of the individual diverge. Mm. That's quite clearly the case right now. I mean, to a certain extent, the only question, I think, going forward is whether Blatter will drag down FIFA with him. Mm. And at some point, if you're an employee of FIFA, you have to, I think, take the position that Blatter is a huge part of the problem and has to go. And I think that's a very difficult tightrope for a communications chief to walk. You certainly, certainly can't expect him to, um, to to start being disloyal to the guy who holds mm-hmm. his future in his hands. But at right. the same time, if you are, in fact, working for the company and not the CEO, and this, mm. you know, we, I've seen this in, in, in a corporate environment too. You certainly see it in right. a political environment. Mm. At some point, the interests of the CEO and the interests of the organization diverge and you have to pick a side. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it actually all comes back to this this question of governance, which is where I think FIFA has, has had so many problems, um, particularly when you compare it to the corporate world and to public companies, which are much more quickly called to account, whether that's by um, customers, regulators, or shareholders. 
FIFA, you know, and, and, and many of these kind of sports governing bodies, which are, I think, uh, you know, either clubs or, or organizations or associations, um, don't have such strict governance rules typically. Uh, and they are able to get away with this kind of behavior much more often than you would see in the corporate world. Well, as a as a sort of international organization, one that is to, you know, certainly not subject to normal regulatory scrutiny um, and one that is capable of intimidating most individual nations. So, for example, you know, it, it's hard to imagine the UK launching this kind of investigation into FIFA mm. without there being some punishment of, you mm -hmm. know, the England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Yeah. Maybe football they wouldn't teams. get the World Cup. Oh, actually, that's <laughs> happened. Yes. You know, I, so when you're dealing with an organization that is sort of supranational, um, that is not mm. subject to any one regulatory organization and that is quite willing to use its power in a vindictive manner, mm -hmm. um, it becomes very difficult to enforce any kind of transparency um, or any kind of sort of ethical norms on that mm -hmm. organization. And, and, you know, I think it's been said for a long time that the only way anything was going to happen um, was, um, was if uh, somebody like the FBI um, mm. you know, which doesn't necessarily give a damn whether the U.S. soccer team gets punished or not, mm. um, takes an active interest. And, you know, I think, hey, uh, FIFA has been trying for a long time to get Americans interested in the world's greatest sport. Mm. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> you succeeded. Um, <laughs> no, they have. Um, I think, you know, the way FIFA is... Um, is constituted, you know, maybe made sense a hundred years ago or whatever, when you had eight nations. Uh, but it's a billion-dollar global organization now. It's a, it's a, you know, a billion-dollar marketing property. It just seems unsustainable, and it just doesn't just go for FIFA. I think. I mean, I would imagine this applies to other sports as well that are run in in a similar fashion. You know, I know cricket has has many of these issues, has yet to attract the the attention of the U.S. authorities. Um, but even some of the U.S. sports, you know, the questions are often raised about the way they're, they're governed. Well, yeah. To, I mean, to be fair, I think um, Rog, Roger Goodell looks a lot better today than, than, he, yeah. did, than he did a couple so, of months ago. He's an Iron Man. He's at least not <laughs> Sepp Blatter. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it may be more instructive to look back – I don't know what it is, 50 or 60 years. I mean, there was a time when the two most, or, or, you know, certainly two of the most popular sports in America, if not the world, were boxing and horse racing. Mm -hmm. And boxing and horse racing were part of the fabric of American life. Uh, you know, if you, if you go back 50 or 60 years, the reason that they are not part of American life today in the same way, is that corruption is in, it was, was seen as endemic in both of those sports. Mm. And, you know, the allure of sports is to a certain extent its purity. It is, you know, two people competing or two teams competing to the best of their abilities on a level playing field. Um, you know, and 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 it's a it's a pure meritocracy in a way, and anything that stands in the way of that, anything that 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 sort of um, suggests corruption, or a tilting of the playing field, 
um, can do a lot of damage to sport over time. And, um, you know, one hopes that as a result of this, soccer will avoid going in the same direction uh, as, as some earlier uh, pastimes. Right. Um, but the sport should not believe that it isn't uh, mm. subject to the same rules of reputation as any other um, any other mm. any other activity. And lastly and quickly, any any thoughts on what this means for the the sports marketing world because they are um, you know heavily implicated in some of the things that are going on here. Um, the, the processes in place seem uh, murky at best. Obviously, we don't want to tar all sports marketing firms with the same brush, but this is also an area which requires, I think, a lot more in the way of transparency. Yeah, I I mean, I think that, um, I think that to a certain extent, we're sort of where we were in, in the sort of, you know, corporate bribery and corruption world 30 years ago, where if you were doing business in certain countries or with certain regimes, if you wanted to extract something from their land, there were payments to be made, there were, um, you know, licenses to be bought, there, there were all kinds of things that were just sort of part of doing business. Mm. Um, and eventually, that way of doing business taints everybody who's associated with it because you can't, you know, you can't compete Levelly, without participating one way or another in what's going mm-hmm. on, and I, I think that um, you know, I think that that the sports marketing agencies and, and, as I said, their clients have a big role to play in mm-hmm. cleaning this up and coming up either with some sort of self-governing rules that have real teeth, or being subject to stricter regulation. Um, right. One of those two things will have to happen. Okay. Well, let's move on from FIFA then, and. Let's talk about our World PR report, which came out to much fanfare 10 years ago. (laughs) If only. No, it was 10 days ago, indeed, when the World PR report came out, including, um, or at least it it launched with our ranking of the top 250 PR firms in the world. Uh, I suppose the headline finding global PR growth of 7%, that was softened by currency volatility which meant that firms reporting in pounds and euros um, grew somewhat less when their earnings were converted into US dollars. Um, But beyond that, I thought it would be interesting to maybe talk to you a little bit about a couple of the things that that jump out from the research. First of all, and this is nothing new, certainly for anyone that's been paying attention, independents continue to outperform the publicly held firms this year, the disparity was uh, was particularly pronounced. I mean, the publicly held PR firms from the big four holding groups were flat. And I think from the big six was something like, oh, sorry, the big seven holding groups were up less than a percentage point. And you compare that with independent firms, which were up in the double digits. Um, it's a gap that seems to be widening. Yes. Um Look, I, 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 I'm, I'm a broken record on this subject, and mm-hmm. so I, I, I hesitate to give my sort of stump speech on the topic again. Um, but I do think that there are, a, I, I, I do think that the, um, uh, 
the obstacles that come with being part of a giant holding company um, now outweigh the benefits mm -hmm. considerably. Um, you know, I I know that uh, I know that there's a great belief in some of these companies in synergy and in the idea of selling an integrated offer and having a one-stop shop for clients to come in and buy advertising and PR and digital and social and everything else in one place. And look, there are clients who want to buy like that. Um, mm -hmm. I believe that that conceptually always requires a compromise. And as clients come to regard public relations as mission critical, they will be less and less willing to make that compromise. Um, I also think that it is very difficult for or, or at least there are serious obstacles to holding company PR agencies selling the full mix of peso services because I think there's still a concern that they are treading on the toes of their sister agencies in advertising and digital and elsewhere when they sell a sort of full mix of peso services. Um, mm. And I think that the quarterly pressure that they're under is making it very difficult for them to make the quality and quantity of investment hires that are necessary at a time when the talent side of the equation demands a lot of new, different talent. Um, you know, we've, we've talked here before about the need for agencies to bring in a whole slew of different kinds of people from um, data and analytics experts to social science experts to content creation experts and, and more. And all of those people, most of those people cost more than the people they're replacing. And you cannot um, add them quickly enough if you're uh, punished when your margins dip below a certain level. Um, some pressure on margins is inevitable from that pace of change. And it, it seems clear to me that the midsize and independent firms are better equipped to deal with that uh, than their publicly traded brethren. Let's talk about mid-sized firms because that's something that jumped out of the research and in fact appears to well, I don't know if conventional wisdom is maybe too strong a phrase, but uh, there certainly seems to have been a view uh, that big PR, big that if you wanted to succeed or do well in the PR market, um, you needed to either be big, and then you get the benefits of scale and multi-markets such as they are, uh, or you need to be small, uh, in which case you can provide the kind of senior counsel and be fast and 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 bring those benefits. Um, but actually, and in tandem with that, there was this idea that the mid-sized firms would get lost in this and, and, and would be neither big nor small and therefore would suffer. That doesn't seem to be the case then. The, the mid-sized firms are doing pretty well. Absolutely. And, you know, I, look, I, 25 years ago, I first heard the, the future of our industry explained to me by somebody who, you know, was in a position to have an opinion. Um, who said, you know, agencies of the future will either be giant behemoths who can do everything for you everywhere, um, or they will be boutiques who do one thing exceptionally well. And the logic of that always escaped me. I, I've always felt that the choice for an agency is, is essentially how many things do you think you can do well? Mm. And if you say to yourself, well, there's one thing that we do better than anybody else and we're just going to focus on that, I think that's a perfectly legitimate choice. I think if you say, there are 10 things that we can do very, very well. Um, 
you know, and and that's either within a geographic market or globally or you know in practice area or industry sector. I think that's a fine choice too. Um, I think it's actually the, the the most difficult thing is to say we're going to try and do everything well simply because managing a portfolio that big is incredibly difficult. Um, and there's no question, it seems to me, that if you look around the world um, and try to identify the really impressive performing agencies over the last five years. The majority of them are mid-sized independents in, um, that, that, are, that are focused primarily on one marketplace geographically, mm-hmm. um, but do a number of things exceptionally well. Um, you know, whether this is, um, and, and I'm sort of including in the concept of independence some of the smaller holding companies, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think there are firms like Mbooth in, in, and Allison in New York. Yeah, so MDC which are, and Next15. Yeah, which are owned yep. by, by smaller holding companies um, that are doing exceptionally well. Um, you know, but, but if you go around Europe, the, the best firms in the UK mm-hmm. are – you know, either the the sort of mid-sized firms, Blue Rubicon in, in corporate, mm-hmm. um, or, or they are up-and-coming firms that, you know, will probably qualify as mid, mid-sized a couple of years from now, like Hope and Glory, right. um, W. Um, and you can go market by market across Europe and find the same things. If I was looking for a PR agency in Germany, there's nobody – among the multinationals that I would pick ahead of Fischer Appelt or Herring Schupener, depending on what my needs were. In Spain, there's nobody I'd pick uh, ahead of uh, Lorente Cuenca or Atrivia or now Apple Tree. You can go market by market, and there are really great independents. Are they mid-sized, though? I mean, is Fischer Appelt a mid-sized firm? I know this comes comes back to semantics to an extent. Well, our, our definition of mid-size um, has expanded o- over the last few years, as, as indeed the industry has. Mm. Um, you know, my, my definition today of a large firm is, is probably 100 million or larger uh, U.S. dollars. Globally? Uh, yeah. Across that's, all that's what we've used um, yeah. as as the cutoff point, you know, when we pick a large agency of the year, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, Fisher Arpelt is, what, 30 or 40 million. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, that's mid-size. At, at the top end of mid-size, you have firms like W2O. Yep. Um, 80 million. Ruta Finn, um, mm-hmm. Finn Partners, those kinds of firms who are, you know, north of 50 these days. Yeah. Um, but but are clearly clearly have more in common with a Gibson Searle or um, or, or an Allison or an Embooth than they do with a Burson Marsteller or Weber Shandwick or an Edelman. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the rise of the midsize. Now let's talk a little bit about independent PR firms and specifically. Um, networks, independent PR networks. So we're all familiar, of course, with with the holding groups that own agencies, and we're all familiar with independent PR firms. Um, many PR firms are, you know, voluntarily join uh, networks uh, of like-minded independent PR firms from various countries. So then I think the biggest is PROI, but other major names such as WorldCom, uh, PRGN, um, IPREX, 
Global Com, Echo, Sermo. I mean, the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. And pretty much every independent PR firm worth its salt is a member of one of these networks. We rank them in our holding group table. But I wonder whether we should rank them because, I mean, are clients actually buying independent PR networks? Or is this just a reflection of the fact that these networks happen to have some very good independent PR firms within them? I think that anybody who joins one of these networks um, hoping or expecting that they will get a massive flood of new business um, that, that, is, that is sort of won by the network and shared across the network is kidding themselves. I mean, right. I, I don't think that's a particularly good reason to join a network like this. Um, I think that there are the, – the main benefits are, um, first of all, the ability to sit down with a group of your peers, um, typically non-competitive peers – um, you know, firms that, that are in the same line of business that you are but, but don't have any incentive to compete with or therefore uh, misinform you mm -hmm. and just sort of share, um, you know, experience and best practice um, across the network. And so it is a collaborative networking opportunity. Um, or for ad hoc international assignments. So if you're working for a client in the U.S. and they say to you, we really need somebody to do something for us next week in Rome, mm -hmm. you can find an Italian affiliate. And, you know, that's a great thing to be able to do from a client service perspective. Um, and it's a great thing. Um, to be able to do in terms of not letting the client go out there, find a, find a multinational firm in Rome and then have the multinational firm turn around and say, well, you know, we could do all this for you back in the States too. Mm. So, I, you know, I think, I, think that there, I think that there are benefits. But, but first of all, I don't recall ever seeing one of those sort of big eight-figure global pitches where the five agencies that were finalists were Edelman, Weber, Burson, MSL, and PROI, mm. um, which is not to say that under certain circumstances, PROI couldn't do just as good a job as any of the, yeah. the wholly, you know, wholly owned networks. Uh, it is to say that I don't think clients are, are buying into that at all. And I see very limited possibility that they will buy into it in the future. Mm -hmm. um, though, you know, one could make a case that PROI is better at quality control Mm -hmm. across multiple markets because it can select partners um, mm. for specific tasks than, than most of the multinationals are. Does the lack of a, you know, a dedicated global client relationship manager, it's an area where firms like Edelman and Weber Shandwick have invested a lot of money, does that leave the independent affiliate networks at, at something of a disadvantage when it comes to trying to secure these kind of multi-market assignments? It, it does. But I also, think, I also think that there is a difference between mm. being global and being multi-local. Mm. There's a difference between having, you know, 50, 50 offices that are separate and independent from one another um, and are all focused on, um, on their local markets and having a genuine global infrastructure. And if you go to any one of the big agencies today, um, there are a number of people. I mean, you know, I'm not, not sure I could 
come up with a number, but you know, it can be anywhere from ten to fifty people within within a big agency that have genuinely international roles that are not just focused on one domestic marketplace, but but have experience across either a region or, or in some cases the globe. And I just don't think that any of the um, you know that that's an infrastructure that. Um, I think would be hard to justify and hard to sustain for uh, for an international network, and so I think there are some, you know, there, there are some logistical obstacles to mm. doing that well. And then when when I talk to, to to people within these networks, one of the things that often comes up is the the brand issue, uh, because they're they're a collection of of, of brands often often well known and in every case much better known than the network brand. Um, now, if they really wanted the networks to 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 live and die on its own, presumably they they should all rebrand as PROI, for example. Um, you know, I'd I'd like to think that clients were sophist- sophisticated enough to to be able to get past that. Which is not to say that they are, but I'd like to think that some of them would be. You're such an idealist. And but but also, you know, I think I think that's a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, which is to say, yeah, I think I think that it's easier for clients to fool themselves into believing that if everybody has the same two words on their business card, mm. they're all working from the same playbook and have the same philosophy and are part of the same kind of culture. I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I still think a lot of the international networks mm-hmm. um, are very variable in terms of both culture and quality from market to market. Um, but I think it's easier for clients to believe that if everybody has the same business card. On the other hand, I think it's probably easier to believe that you are dealing with people who really know their local domestic market mm. if they're operating under a different name. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's easier to believe for some clients. I think it's easier to believe that uh, Fisher Appelt will know the German market better than Hill and Knowlton knows the German market, for example. Mm. Um, you know, because it's it's of, uh, <laughs> it's of that that world. Uh, again, I'm not sure that's necessarily true, but I think it's it's mm. it's easier for clients to believe that. So I, I think the branding issue is prob- can probably cut both ways. Mm. Um, you know, I'm sure there are some people who go to Germany and say we want a we want a local indigenous firm, not a big multinational, because we think the local indigenous firm will know the market better. Yeah. And actually, it seems to me that clients themselves have become much more comfortable in terms of creating their own networks. Um, I mean, have, do you see that or do you think it's, it's, it's as it ever was? Um, no, I, I do see that. I mean, I, it, it, honestly, I've always said that if I was a client... Mm-hmm. That would be my preferred modus operandi. Um, I believe PR. I believe two things about PR. I believe that it is a mission critical function. That the difference between getting a decent PR firm and a great PR firm is a big difference. Mm. Um, and the second thing that I believe is that um, you pick the right PR firm for the right job. Mm-hmm. Um, and anytime you pick 
a global provider, you're sort of ac accepting, it, again, it's a, it's a trade of convenience for quality. Mm. You're accepting that in some markets it will be a B-plus or even a B-minus agency. And if you want an A-plus, you go market by market. And yes, it's hard work. Yes, it can be a little more expensive. I'm not sure it's always more expensive. Mm. Um, and, and yes, it can, be, it can be less convenient and there may be points at which a compromise becomes sensible. And by the way, I mean, it, you know, when I say the best, the best agency in each market, I mean, it may very well be that you decide that the best agency for you in the UK is an Edelman or a Hill and Knowlton. Right, but sure. but yeah. to, to go in and say, we're only going to choose from these two agencies, you know, mm -hmm. the, who are on our global roster, or we're going to work with whatever agency it is in every single market. It uh, seems to mm -hmm. me to, to ex mean, mean compromising quality. Mm. I could see if, if you're a niche network, there may be something to that. So, for example, Sermo, which kind of focuses specifically on, on luxury and, and upmarket mm -hmm. consumer. Um, certainly, you know, compared to some of the other ones where, you know, their firm's made up of, of sort of generalists, there's, a, I, I think, a clearer positioning there. Um, but I wonder what the benefit is. I mean, you, you talked about, obviously, it's a, it's a, there's a strong learning opportunity. You can gather with your partner firms once a year. But these things all cost. And I don't know. I mean, I'm sure every firm has its does its own um, cost-benefit analysis on these things. But you do wonder why so many of them exist and whether we need as many of them as there are. Yeah, I, so... I do think that for a majority of network members, this is a defensive mm. play rather rather than necessarily a, a, a mm. sort of proactive. I think it's it's a feeling that if a client comes along and says, we can't work with you anymore because you don't get international or you can't help us in mm -hmm. an overseas market. You at least have a response. You have something intelligent to say and, and something that you can believe in to say back to them. Mm -hmm. um, but, but as I said, I, I don't see it as a massive new business benefit. Mm -hmm. um, it may be a bit of a security blanket in new business to right. be able to, you know, that last slide in it the presentation good. that yeah. says, here's our global reach. Yeah. Um, but I doubt, the whether, I doubt whether, it, yeah, I doubt whether it seals the deal um, mm -hmm. in a lot of new business pitches. Mm. Okay, well, I look forward to all of the, uh, the angry responses we're going to get now from independent affiliate networks. I, I would suggest you direct them all towards Paul. Thank you. And as ever, Paul, it's been a pleasure to have you on. We will see you again soon. Great to be here. Many thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you, of course, to Marketeers 4DC for helping us produce and deliver today's show. This is Arun Sudaman from The Homes Report. Uh, you can get in touch with me on email, Twitter, telephone, with any feedback and thoughts. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.